coming to get you, Barbara. Here's some money. Go see a Star Wars. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Welcome back to Long Walk Talks. My name is David Hensley. I'm the owner and creative director of Long Walk Productions, and today I am joined by just one of my co-hosts, Chris Wilson-Barnes. How are you, Chris? I'm fine. Good. Uh, Stan is not here because of some storms that are happening around his area, so it's just going to be the two of us tonight. And this is going to be a very weird episode. What? We'll just we'll join Stan later as he reports from Oz. Yeah, basically. Uh, so this episode is going to be a little bit different than their than our uh, discussions that we had about clerks and mall rants, uh, and it's going to be a little bit uh, more serious and less silly than those discussions were. And that's because I feel like I kind of dropped the ball on this episode, uh, to be perfectly frank about it, because I very strongly believe that representation matters, and I'm very conflicted about this film so it's sort of become an accidental theme here that um, last year we discussed quentin tarantino and his filmography and his third film jackie brown uh the episode that we did discussing that came out uh we released it a little over a month after the murder of george floyd which was a long overdue wake-up call for the arts community about performative allyship and actually being inclusive and representative. So in that regard, I wanted to make sure that that episode was more inclusive because I didn't feel like the three of us as three straight white guys were really the best authority on a movie that is about the struggles of a black woman. So that's why I reached out to five local black artists to ask for their input on the film. I wish that I had had the forethought to do that with this film that we're discussing tonight, Chasing Amy. Because just like Jackie Brown, Chasing Amy is Kevin Smith's third film, and it deals with a lot of heavy topics, uh, especially or primarily topics that concern the LGBTQ plus community. It would have been very naive of us and very short-sighted to try to talk about Jackie Brown with any degree of authenticity because we do not know the black experience. And likewise, it would also be very naive and short-sighted of us to talk about the lesbian aspects of Chasing Amy with any degree of authenticity. So that's why I wanted to make sure that we included some level of representation in this episode, even though I did not have the forethought to try to get us a guest star for this episode from the LGBTQ plus community. Now, there are aspects of the film that we can, primarily uh, the aspect of Ben Affleck's character, Holden. So I say all that to say, this is going to be a very different episode. So I want to start by talking about our experiences watching this movie because i watched it again last night for the first time in 16 or 17 years and 
halfway through, I was like, holy shit, this is a very different film than I remember it being. Um, you watched it for the first time last night, right? Oh, ever, yes. And, I, uh, I watched a movie about a man and a woman and that man's desire to absolutely fuck up the best thing he's had relationship-wise. Yeah. Katie also watched this for the first time last night, and she absolutely hated it, and she had a lot of very good reasons why. We spent a lot of time after it was over discussing the problematic elements of it, of which there are a lot. So having seen this yourself for the first time last mm-hmm. night, what was your experience like, like watching it one for the first time and two watching it now in 2021? I mean, overall it's a fine movie. It's good. I think overall I can say I, I enjoyed it for what it is. I think overall the best thing about it is you see <clears throat> Kevin Smith proving he he's matured uh, in his filmmaking and and how he handles his movie and his and his plotline and you know he's corral he's corralled better performances out of people thing things are a lot smoother in terms of him making movies I don't get why everyone loves this movie so hard I don't it's like I don't know why this has a criterion release right. I don't get, I, I I said to you earlier today uh when we were talking about it this, this plot line is a sitcom plot that has been turned into a movie. Into a melodrama. Yeah, yeah. kind of, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it was a very different experience. And if you'd asked me when I saw this at 16 years old, if I if, if this was a great movie and if it deserved a Criterion release and if it deserved all the accolades that it got when it was released in 1997, I would have said yes. But what watching it last night really proved to me was how much my sense of humor has changed Mm -hmm. and how much my taste in storytelling has changed. I'll be honest with you. There was a point during the movie last night where I was like, Oh, I think I fucked up here by picking Kevin Smith to be our next director to discuss because my experiences with clerks and mall rats were so different than I remembered and for a hot second, I was like, do I really, do we want to continue doing this? You know, we've got... Well, I, I say we should. And actually, yeah. your reaction is a very good reason to. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> we've still got several films and a cartoon to discuss after this, which I will go over the uh, release schedule of the rest of the Kevin Smith filmography at the end of the episode, because we are going to continue the discussion. I think it's worth talking about. That's right. At the end, there's a quiz. Yes. Uh, and you should uh, be taking notes right now no it was a very frustrating experience watching it again because this does have a lot of good elements to it but it's also got a lot of very frustrating and problematic elements to it now strictly from a filmmaking standpoint i think that this is probably smith's best work I, I, I think he's on record saying he thinks the same thing, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's the best cinematography. And these opinions might change as we watch the rest of the View Askew universe. Um, Maybe I do have a quibble with that. There is the, the scene where they... I, I mentioned this earlier to you. is The the scene where they're having it out, where Holden admits he loves Alyssa. It's so wobbly. I, I, it I is. I could not... 
I could not almost not focus on what they were saying because it was I it was like the guy had an inner ear imbalance a little bit. And I feel like from a technical standpoint that came about of try, from trying to get a camera in the front seat of a car. Yeah. Um and focused on Ben Affleck while still having Joey Lauren Adams there to give him an eye line. Was- oh no, no, that's not the scene. The scene is with him and Banky. Oh, not not the not the confession scene, but the the argument between him and Banky. Oh yeah, that scene. I uh, yeah, that, I feel like that was for artistic purposes, just because that I, scene gets so heated between I them. Yes, but it took me out of it. But I mean, it was that aside. I mean, that was really the only technical thing that irked me. So well, it was very interesting that he did this in a very he shot this in a very old school manner. Uh-huh. In that, uh, one of the things that Stan and I have often talked about is how much we love set the camera down and let it roll filmmaking doing very long takes. Like I think specifically that uh, scene outside of their apartment after Banky finds Holden and Alyssa uh, in yeah. bed together, that's shot primarily in one very long take. And uh, it's a very old school style of filmmaking that I feel like he really hit the nail on the head with here. Oh yeah, the the discovery and that scene are both really good. From his reaction to him going outside, yeah, is a very, is a very very good sequence. Um, so before we get into kind of the aspects of the film that we've discussed in uh, prior episodes, like the the connective tissue of the Viewisk universe, right? Because I feel like I dropped the ball on this one, and we're not being as representative as we should be. I went uh, online last night and started looking for articles about this movie, and I found a very good one on BuzzFeed News, of all places. Okay. Uh, But before you jump into that, I'm just going to do a quick synopsis. Oh, yes. Please do, because I'm really bad about that. And and I'm I'm interested to do it since it was my first viewing. And and I, I will say, honestly, my problems aren't so much with construction of the movie as where Holden's character takes a nosedive and I understand it's integral to the plot but man the first hour does not set you up at all for the second no it really um, doesn't that is also a surprise that this movie was two hours but um uh, so the quick synopsis is uh Holden McNeil and Banky is it Banky Edwards I think so yeah yeah Holden McNeil and Banky Edwards are apparently like almost lifelong friends uh and they they uh have an apartment together and they are comic book artists who have created their own kind of they they created their own hit uh comic blunt man and chronic yes uh and uh they are they are attending a comic-con near near their home uh when they meet up with uh two uh two two uh different comic creators Hooper x and Alyssa jones Alyssa jones um Alyssa jones Alyssa and holden really hit it off uh, and they, and he, you know, he 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 feels a spark, uh, and Hooper invites him to hang out more, and that's when he finds out Alyssa is a lesbian, uh, d- despite doing his best to to try and uh, woo her a little bit. Uh, dejected about that, Alyssa still hang, uh, he he still hangs out with Alyssa as a as a friend, and they get along great. They they ha- they become fast friends. They are supremely close, and then. Uh, he real uh, Banky gets jealous, and he and he admits to Banky that he's that he's actually fallen in love with her, and he ends up confessing that to Alyssa, who, after taking the initial confession, 
poorly. Understandably so. Understand very understandably so. And I need to talk about that scene. Yeah. Um, she does actually end up deciding she's going to reciprocate, uh, and she agrees to a relationship. It go it goes very well, very very well until Banky uh, brings up uh, questions about her past. Uh, Holden gets, uh, I'll, I'll honestly say, kind of paranoid and jealous. Mm-hmm. Uh, confronts her on it in a very upsetting scene. Uh, she she is understandably pissed and. They, they basically go their separate ways for a little while. Yeah, uh, you, you, they're 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 basically they they're apart. They um, yeah they break up. They break ostensibly. Uh, yeah, they're they're kind of like they're just I don't know they're kind of in a holding pattern until uh, after seeking advice uh, f- from both Hooper X and uh, Jay and Silent Bob who who make an appearance because they are the likenesses for Blunt Man and Chronic. They he ends up. Uh, Having Banky and and Alyssa have a t- come meet at the same time to talk with him, he royally fucks up, and the, and basically almost completely ruins his friendship and and, and his friend his friendship with Banky and his friendship slash uh, relationship with Alyssa uh, until uh, the, until the epilogue where it shows he's actually. Making amends. He is, yeah. He's making amends. He hasn't. I don't think he's fully gotten there yet, but he's starting to. Yeah. And he's actually working his shit out, and that's where the movie leaves off. And thank you for doing that because I go into most of these episodes just assuming that most of our yeah. listeners will have probably seen them. It never hurts to have a refresher. Yeah. So I'm going to read this article and I'm going to read it mostly in its entirety. It's a pretty long article, yeah. but I started as I was reading it last night, um, cherry picking quotes from it. Uh, and then I realized, no, I I'd rather just read the, this woman's writing verbatim. Right. Um, I am, however, since it is a long article, I'm going to read or leave out some of the quotes from Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier that she included from her interviews with them. Um, But for the most part, I'm going to read it as written. So like I said, this is from BuzzFeed News, uh, April 18th, 2017. And it's titled, Looking Back at the Sexual Politics of Chasing Amy 20 Years Later by Shannon Keating. In 1997, Kevin Smith's romantic comedy about a guy who falls in love with a lesbian quickly became a cult favorite, but it also pissed off a bunch of queer people. Smith talks about the film's origins, how he dealt with the backlash, and what he thinks of Chasing Amy's legacy. Two decades after its initial release, some parts of Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy hold up quite well, particularly every time Ben Affleck's character, Holden, gets told to fuck off. During a pivotal scene, Holden and Alyssa, Joey Lauren Adams, are sitting in Holden's car, pulled over on the side of the road during a rainstorm. Both comic book writers, they originally met at a Comic-Con and quickly became close friends. One night, while Holden is driving Alyssa back to her place in New York, Holden suddenly snaps. He's decided friendship is just not enough for him and tells Alyssa that he's in love with her. And here she includes, the author includes a quote from Holden in the movie. Uh, Holden assumes that Alyssa can simply choose to strike up a relationship with him. But here's the problem. Alyssa's a lesbian. Her lesbianism, by this point in the film, has been extremely well-established. To everyone, it seems, except Holden. 
After Holden wraps up his long, rambling speech, during which he tells Alyssa he'd rather trash their friendship than forego the chance, however slight, of getting in her pants, Alyssa bails on him and attempts to hitchhike home. Holden runs after her, pleading. Isn't she at least going to give him a response? Here's my comment, says Alyssa. Fuck you. Holden suggests that all she might need is a period of adjustment. There's no period of adjustment, Holden, Alyssa screams, shoving him in the chest. I am fucking gay. That's who I am. And you assume that I can just turn all that around because you've got a fucking crush? She tells him to go home, and he returns broodingly to his car without her. But a few minutes later, Alyssa runs back into Holden's arms, all of her objections conveniently whisked away as they start making out in the rain. It's not even a few moments. He hasn't even opened the door to get back in the car yet. Yeah. The third film in Kevin Smith's View Us Universe series, Chasing Amy was a commercial as well as a critical success, grossing over $12 million on a $250,000 budget. It garnered mostly positive reviews and won two Independent Spirit Awards. A sometimes charming, sometimes infuriating rom-com dressed up as a raunchy buddy comedy, Chasing Amy pushed the boundaries of sexual mores pitted the casual and sometimes not-so-casual misogyny of comic book culture against budding male vulnerability and tackled the complications of love and friendship in ways, the most <clears throat> in ways that deeply connected with a generation of almost adults in the 90s who were just figuring out how to grow up. For the New York Times, Janet Maslin wrote that the film, quote, redefines the boy-meets-girl boy formula for a culture where anything goes and that Smith's, quote, knowing humor and unruffled style makes for a good antidote to gender chaos. When Chasing Amy entered wide release 20 years ago today, both lesbian and mainstream culture were racked with battles over identity politics and political correctness, battles which, in 2017, are now raging afresh. And outside of the article, I'll say it's 2021, and they are still uh, raging. Yes, very much so. And um, for good reason. Uh, Questions about how to define different queer identities, the possibilities and limits of sexual fluidity, and what mysterious chemistry drives attraction are as much a part of the contemporary queer conversation as they were in the mid-90s. Chasing Amy was, in many ways, ahead of its time. Quote, The weird thing about it is, you know, when you look at it now, to borrow a term from the present... It was very woke for 1997, Kevin Smith told me during a recent phone interview. I've heard from people like, hey, it holds up, and some people are like, eh, it holds up, but some of it is kind of dated. At the time of its release and in the years since, a number of queer critics and academics have criticized the film for attempting to school its audience of primarily straight nerd bros in Lesbianism 101, parentheses, how sex between women works, virginity as a social construct, only to end up punishing its lesbian character for her sloppy sexual history. It's much less a lesbian film than it is a clueless bro's coming-of-age story that just happens to have a lesbian character, and she exists for the most part in the service of the straight dude, kickstarting his evolution without getting much in return. Ultimately, the film assumes that a lesbian can go straight, even if just for a little while, as soon as the right guy comes along. 20 years after its release, Chasing Amy is, quote, certainly not an important film for the gay community, Smith told me, reflecting on its legacy. Quote, it's an important film for me. 
Smith has said over the years that Chasing Amy was inspired by his producing partner's crush on lesbian filmmaker Guinevere Turner, his brother being gay, and his relationship with the film's star, various personal experiences thrown into a fictional blender. Quote, it depicted dudes who were maybe on the verge of waking up, so to speak. But no, I think Chasing Amy is important only to me at the end of the day. At one point during our conversation, Smith got audibly choked up, remembering the moment when Miramax said it was going to buy the film. Quote, it changed everything. But Chasing Amy was more than a turning point for Smith's career. It coincided with a major shift in popular lesbian culture. Just weeks after its release in 1997, the now-famous puppy episode of Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom Ellen saw her character come out of the closet, inspiring immediate backlash and kicking off DeGeneres' legacy as one of the world's most well-known lesbians. DeGeneres and others have since helped to normalize a certain brand of modest, white, domesticated homosexuality, while everything from fan-favorite queer web series like Little Horribles to critically acclaimed romantic dramas like Todd Haynes' Carol have introduced modern audiences to dozens of different lesbian characters, parentheses, some of whom managed to not get killed off in the end. And yet the full breadth of lesbianism isn't that much less of a cultural mystery, nor is it much less derided and disbelieved than it was in 1997 when Kevin Smith's cult classic awkwardly attempted to depict a subculture that few people outside of it care to understand. After Smith finished his first draft of the Chasing Amy script, he showed it to Guinevere Turner, the screenwriter and actor behind Go Fish, a mega low-budget indie about a group of lesbian friends directed and co-written by Rose, I hope I am pronouncing this right, Troche, uh, written by Rose Troche, which remains a pivotal work in lesbian cinema. Turner and Smith met at Sundance in 1994, the year both Go Fish and Smith's first Viewisk Universe film, Clerks, were screening there. Quote, she was the person I'd show pages to because I was shooting in the fucking dark, Smith told me. I didn't know anything about being a lesbian, the sexual practices of a lesbian. And mind you, this is pre-internet, so I didn't even have like fucking rudimentary porn to look at and shit like that to be like, quote, oh, that's what they do. A quote inside a quote. But before Turner saw the script, Smith says she partially inspired it. At Sundance, Smith and his producing partner, Scott Mosier, spent a lot of time hanging out with Turner and Troche. Quote, as far as we knew, they were the first lesbians we'd ever met in our lives, said Smith. After the festival ended, Mosier kept in touch with Turner and, according to Smith, developed a bit of a crush. Quote, I'd say to Scott, you're falling in love with this girl, Smith remembers. Both Smith and Mosier relayed this piece of Chasing Amy's origin story in an episode of their Smodcast show in 2009, Glazing Amy. Outside the article, uh, for listeners who don't know, the Smodcast is Kevin Smith's uh, flagship podcast and probably one of like one of the big ones that people think of when they think of mainstream podcasts, I would say. Yeah, yeah. During the episode, which doubled as a new commentary track for Chasing Amy 12 years after its release, Smith jokes about Mosier attempting to convince Turner to date him despite her lesbianism. At the time, Smith told Mosier to convert his heartache into content and make a movie about a guy who falls in love with a lesbian. But Mosier didn't think there was enough there, so Smith decided to take on the storyline himself, even though he, quote, didn't really know that much about gay culture and specifically lesbian culture, he says in Glazing Amy. 
Over the phone, Turner told me that after Chasing Amy was released, rumors were swirling that her role in inspiring the script went way further than an unrequited crush. Quote, you had sex with Scott Mosier, you had sex with Kevin Smith, she remembers. No on both counts. Turner remembers that Smith asked her to read his first draft, quote, with lesbian eyeballs. She said she pointed out a part in the script where Smith, quote, had a thing about tongue fucking. And I was like, you have a tongue, you know what a vagina is like. You can't fuck someone with a tongue. Lesbians aren't given extra inches on their tongues. But other than that, Turner says she wasn't involved, besides finding Smith the setting for a lesbian bar scene in which she has a cameo. The since-closed the since Meow Mix in downtown Manhattan, which was owned by one of her best friends at the time. Quote, I thought it was funny outside of the lesbian content, Turner said. I loved the friendship between the two guys. She noted the undercurrent of, quote, weird homo stuff, charging Holden's relationship with his repressed, bigoted, and seemingly closeted best friend, Jason Lee's banky. Quote, that kind of bromance hadn't really been invented yet. But Turner also warned him, quote, lesbians are going to hate this movie. This is a woman who's been a lesbian her whole life and stops being a lesbian to be with a man, she said. Quote, they're going to crucify it. And there were plenty who did. After the film was released, however, Turner says the reception wasn't as cutthroat as she'd expected. I was so wrong. A lot of lesbians I know really loved the movie. I remember being embarrassed like I didn't know my own community. Queer women, of course, are not a monolith, just like any other group. There's no grand gay consensus on Chasing Amy, or any other film for that matter. In Glazing Amy, Smith pointed out that the various scenes that had some angry lesbian viewers, quote, up my ass about this movie... Still, he adds during the commentary track, quote, I'm kind of proud of myself. I got pretty close. It still looks like obviously someone who's not a lesbian made this movie. When I asked whether Smith still feels like he identifies with lesbians, it's been eight years since he and Mosier recorded Glazing Amy, Smith paused to think, quote, do I identify with the lesbian community still? Absolutely. I doubt that many of them identify with me. I've never really identified with like dudes, he adds. Quote, I don't know how else to put it. I've always been more comfortable around women. And not like they get me better. Not at all. I'm a pretty effeminate dude, to be honest with you, and I have been most of my life. I think that comes from being raised primarily by my mom, and I like to think I'm kind of enlightened. At the time he made Chasing Amy, quote, a lot of dudes were very much like, ew, gay dudes, shit like that, and I had the benefit of being brighter than that, he said. Smith says that in addition to basing the script on Mosher's unrequited crush, he made Chasing Amy for his older brother, who is gay and whom he considers a personal hero. Smith, quote, hated thinking about my poor brother going to see movies that didn't speak to his personal experience. So now in his films, quote, I'm always going to whip a little gay content in there for my brother. He mentioned the homoerotica that runs through his other films, like Clerks, which is about, quote, dudes who love each other and just don't fuck. It's almost gay cinema, as far as I'm concerned. Of gay people, he said, quote, I'll always feel a kindred spirit of sorts. I guess being an outsider has something to do with it, too. I've never really been part of the mainstream, and neither has the gay community. But, you know, I'd be embarrassing myself and everyone I know if I was sitting here being like, oh, yeah, I can identify with the lesbian experience. I mean, I identify more with being a lady than being a lesbian. Even though Smith's brother inspired him to take on a gay storyline and Scott Mosher's crush on Guinevere Turner formed Chasing Amy's general premise, Smith says most of the film was based on Smith's relationship with Joey Lauren Adams. 
He and Adams, who stars as Alyssa, were dating at the time they were making the film. As a bearded, New Jersey-dwelling hockey and comic book fan, Holden's an easy stand-in for Kevin Smith himself. Watching this film, or quote, watching this film, the viewer can find me in every nook and cranny, Smith wrote for a post on the Criterion Collection's website in 2000. Quote, the character of Holden is the closest to me I've ever written. Casting Ben was aesthetically wishful thinking, perhaps. Ben, as in Affleck, plays a character who is what plenty of sexually frustrated, geeky teen boys dream of growing up to be. A modestly successful comic book artist who lives, with, who lives and works with his best friend from high school. His ability to convince a lesbian to sleep with him is just icing on the fantastical cake. Though Adams isn't gay, Smith told me that he spent their relationship grappling with Adams' past. Compared to him, Adams had, quote, lived a very big life and had lots of experience. Quote, that sounds weird. I don't want to say lots of experience like, oh my God, she slept with a bunch of people, he clarified. Quote, she was fucking worldly. I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about she lived in Bali. The weirdest, most important thing that ever happened to me was clerks and it was over. This was a person who had actually lived a fucking life. So she was intimidating to say the least. He decided to make a movie about their relationship, but didn't want the plot to be, quote, a fat kid dating an actress. He combined Mosier's story of unrequited love with his own, and Chasing Amy was born. Quote, the script is really one big apology to Joey Adams because I was such a jealous prick, Smith said. Quote, making Chasing Amy saved me from being that guy for the rest of my life. Although Smith wrote the script mostly based on his own experiences, Chasing Amy does raise some interesting questions about gay politics, even if those questions felt a little fresher 20 years ago than they do now. During one scene set in a record store, Holden is stressing out about his second major blowout fight with Alyssa, after he discovers that he wasn't the first man she'd ever slept with. Being told over and over and over again that he had no chance with his lesbian friend wasn't enough to deter him from aggressively pursuing her, but after finally getting the girl, learning that she once had a threesome with some guys in high school has him running for the hills. While they're shopping for records, Holden's friend Hooper, Dwight Ewell, a gay black comic who feigns butchiness in public appearances to sell his work, warns Holden not to fall for the new trend of, quote, lesbian chic. And the author then goes on to include a quote from Banky, I'm sorry, from Hooper from that scene. It's a provocative exploration of queer infighting as pervasive 20 years ago as it is today. Hooper assumes that feminine lesbians have it so easy because they're now desired by mainstream male culture. He doesn't consider that femme queer women sit at the intersection of sexism and homophobia. Hooper's point about the struggles of being a minority within a minority is a powerful one, but it doesn't acknowledge that queer women of color, who are triply marginalized, exist at all. The other major scene that explores an aspect of queer culture involves a conversation Alyssa has with her lesbian friends soon after her rain makeout with Holden, when they're all hanging out in the New York apartment. After some goading, Alyssa tells them that she's fallen in love before admitting that her new partner is a man. The women are deeply disappointed. Quote, another one bites the dust, one says, draining her wine. The scene recalls a similar one in Go Fish involving a group of lesbians ganging up on a woman who slept with a man and debating whether she still has the right to call herself a lesbian. Quote, we got so much pushback for Go Fish for that scene. Not when it came out, but when we were shooting it, Turner remembers. Some lesbians have certainly undergone identity crises and even suffered friend group fallouts for starting to date men, 
while some bisexual women have felt ostracized from lesbian spaces for the exact same reason. But even though Alyssa's storyline is perfectly believable, some self-identified lesbians have slept with men, and some have gotten unwarranted shit for it, it depicts a very limited slice of queer experience and casts all lesbians as sour and one-dimensional man-haters. While Go Fish dedicates one scene to exploring what happens to lesbians and their communities when men get involved, that issue is chasing Amy's entire premise. In the 90s, Kevin Smith was well aware that some critics knocked him for depicting lesbians in this limited way. Quote, I think I found those critiques valid then as well, but there's nothing I could do, he told me. Quote, it's not like, well, the next movie I make about a guy who falls in love with a lesbian will be a lot better. But I understand them, absolutely. And believe me, the ones I didn't understand, Gwen explained to me very patiently back in the day. Quote, I like that in his memory, I'm the Yoda of lesbian culture, Turner told me, laughing. She doesn't remember explaining specific critiques to him, quote, but of course I would have. It's not rocket science, but apparently it was to him. No offense, Kevin. Chasing Amy's most memorable scene is its climax. Holden decides that the only way to get over his feelings of inadequacy regarding Alyssa's sexual past is to sit her down with his best friend Banky, who has spent most of chasing Amy berating Holden for dating a, quote, fucking dyke who's just going to leave him. Holden calmly requests that they all have a threesome together. This is an entirely reasonable request, he figures, because Banky is clearly in love with him. Parentheses, why else has... Why else has he been so obsessive and homophobic? And this would be an opportunity for Holden and Alyssa to go somewhere sexually adventurous together, evening the playing field. Quote, you know I need this, Holden Weedles. Quote, this should be no big deal for you. Alyssa, looking stricken, says that, says that time in her life has passed, and she found what she was looking for all along in Holden, something she apparently couldn't find throughout years and years of loving women. It's the kind of request that might warrant a takedown from the most controversial character on The L Word, a, the Showtime series centered on a group of lesbian friends in West Hollywood. As Jenny Schechter once said, It's not a fucking woman's job to be consumed and invaded and spat out so some fucking man can evolve. Alyssa offers a takedown of her own. Quote, I love you. I always will. Know that, she says, standing up to hug him. Then she hits him full across the face, quote, but I'm not your fucking whore. A year later, Alyssa has a new girlfriend and Holden is pretty much empty handed, but he does have his new comic chasing Amy based on his relationship with Alyssa, which he shows to her when they run into each other at another comic con in New York. They've reached a kind of peace. Smith said that after the film was released, viewers would ask if he thought the two ended up together as a quote, I'm sorry, as, quote, a 20-something shithead, he'd tell them, a dreamer feels they will, a realist knows they won't. Early on, Alyssa makes clear that she's not, that she's, quote, not a man-hater or something like that. It's just been some time that she's been exposed to a man who didn't live up to a, quote, stereotype of some sort. Here, the film kills two birds with one stone. Alyssa is depicted as a desirably cool, reasonable lesbian, not one of those scary, man-heating dykes. Meanwhile, Holden exists beyond stereotypes, special enough to temporarily save her from the gay dark side. Their eventual breakup is mostly attributed to differences in experience and lifestyle. 
But until the very end, Alyssa still says that she loves Holden and, quote, always will. Quote, for anyone who watches the movie now and goes like, ooh, the sexual politics are not very subtle, you've got to remember. It was made by a 26-year-old, 27-year-old guy who really didn't know anything and was learning in that moment, Smith told me. Quote, as much as it's a movie that's closely identified with the gay community, by virtue of the fact that the main character was gay, I really never think about it as such. To me, it was about a boy who grows up to become a man but loses everything in the process. Very bittersweet. Quote, I can see why a new generation wouldn't be crazy about it, Turner said. Quote, sex, sex and sexuality is so much more visible. There's a heck of a lot more out there, certainly more than there was 20 years ago. Chasing Amy, she said, quote, isn't even a lesbian movie, but it has a lesbian in it with a complicated sexuality that had literally never been done before in any movie anyone had ever seen. 20 years after Chasing Amy's release, movies about lesbians aren't quite as rare, but are still few and far between. And like movies about basically everything else, they still tend to be directed by men. The biggest movies involving lesbian characters over the past decade have been rich, beautifully shot dramas by male auteurs, including Todd Haynes's much-beloved Carol and controversial foreign contenders like outside article. I am going to butcher this name and I don't want to be disrespectful by saying it, uh, but the name of the movie is Blue is the Warmest Color and Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. Quote, am I personally dying for a big lesbian movie on the level of Carol or a blue is the warmest color, said Turner when I asked about the future of lesbian movies. Quote, no, I feel like that model is kind of outdated. We're better and smarter and more interesting than that. From Lisa Choladenko's High Art, 1998, to D. Rees' Pariah, 2011, to Desiree Akhavan's Appropriate Behavior, 2014, Queer indie filmmakers have been telling their own stories in gorgeous, funny, and heartbreaking ways for decades now. But as generational ideas about gender and sexuality constantly change, so too does the film industry. Quote, all the women that I know, all the women making lesbian films in the 90s, we spent the rest of our careers proving we weren't just lesbian filmmakers, said Turner. And now, quote, a new generation is like, what, indie film? We have the internet, we have web series. I think we're in a bit of a wild, wild west period here. Turner muses that, quote, no one knows what to do post L word, which Turner worked on as a writer and guest actor. Quote, for me personally, making new stuff, I obviously want lesbian representation, but I don't want to make the next lesbian show. To me, it has to be something more, she adds. Quote, to me, you can no longer talk about LGBT without really talking about everything happening across generations with identity that tension and joy and discovery. Two decades ago, Chasing Amy won praise and accolades as much as it incited ire and debate. Now some argue the sexual politics have, have actually aged quite well. Perhaps Chasing Amy was actually about bisexuality all along and the limits of forcing people into binary boxes of attraction when the queer experience can oftentimes be more fluid and more complicated than that. Queer women are still fiercely debating the future of lesbian identity in an age when gender boundaries are crashing around us every day. Looking back, the 90s era debates about Chasing Amy seem like small harbingers of the different sorts of queer conversations to come. In 2017, the future of lesbian films seems just as shaky as the future of lesbian bars. 
Uh, here she includes uh, some quotes about Meow Mix. And uh, she concludes it by saying, That's why Chasing Amy remains so memorable and so polarizing. Its attempt to demystify a highly politicized and off-maligned identity, for better or worse. So that was a very long article, but I wanted to read it, it mostly in its entirety. And credit where credit is due, again, that is looking back at the sexual politics of Chasing Amy 20 years later by Shannon Keating, BuzzFeed News reporter. She, that was well written, but it just basically took a long time to say uh, it shouldn't have presented sexuality in a stark binary between heterosexual and homosexual. Yeah. That seems to be the main problem because it's just like, I think... If if Alyssa, Alyssa's line when they're when she and Holden are talking in bed about how basically she doesn't give a shit about gender when she's looking for love, if that had been presented sooner rather than at that point in the movie, and they could have called back to it there, that would have done a lot more to alleviate the immediate problem, at least to me, because yes, I mean really as it goes on. She she would I mean she the character really is seems to be bisexual or uh, maybe in today's uh, terminology she would be more pansexual. Uh, uh, it, it, in talking about it in the stark in that stark binary of she's a lesbian I think really leads to more of the problems I have with the movie. Yeah, and it also has a lot to do with the issue of bi erasure. Because yeah. it, the movie really does treat homosexuality as either you're 100% gay or you're 100% straight and anything in the middle is just foreign. Whereas 24 years later, we see what a spectrum there is of sexuality. Yeah. And, and the scene where she admits that, you know, she's in love with Holden and her friends end up shunning her, basically ghosting her over it um i mean that's a thing that can happen when when in 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 the in different subcultures when you find out yeah i mean i i know i know i know a little bit of terminology i know enough to be dangerous but it's there there are some people within the queer community like if you're not a gold star lesbian you're not really a lesbian to them yeah well and it speaks to the i'm sorry and it speaks to the truth that some some people who are queer and and trying to figure that out they have experiences with the opposite sex before they realize mm-hmm. and it, it and as, as it uh, i was talking to stan about it earlier is it sounds like she was she was she 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 is bi at the very least i think and she after a series of disappointments <laughs> she was she seemed to be like well i i feel like i both fare better and connect better with women so she just stayed there, and I think she decided, well, I'm bi, but really, I'm basically just going to be on the women's side of it, as far as I know, for the, for who knows how long. And then Holden changed that, and Holden, she connected. I would say, because of the way she talked about it, she would be bi or pan, and, and she was, essentially, before Holden fucked it up... Uh, they were basically hitting the point of like, I think she would have said the word soulmate at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I agree with you completely. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I wanted to make sure that I read that because yeah. we needed a viewpoint that was broader than our viewpoints of straight white men. Sure. <clears throat> sure. So with that, I think let's round this out by talking about some of the highs and lows of okay. the movie. Right. <clears throat> I already talked a little bit about the beginning about how much I enjoy the cinematography mm-hmm. of this movie. Let's take a moment to talk about the world's most melodramatic monologue. <laughs> are we, are and, we, is and, it the confession? <clears throat> the confession okay. and how fucking problematic that whole scene is. That is the one time I'll, I'll easily join, <clears throat> join in and say the word problematic. Um, you go ahead. You go. Well, one, Holden's monologue about his confession of love to Alyssa is first semester at art school screenwriting 101, edgy and heartfelt. It is just so cringy, so on the nose so straight white guy hopeless romantic yeah it hurts it's it's some it's something that you would see out of any romantic comedy Mm -hmm. Uh, and especially but usually that kind of thing would pop up at the end where it's where you just about wrap up for the happy ending yeah and it's especially jarring coming from smith as a writer who tends to do pretty quippy pretty realistic dialogue to stop the movie dead in its tracks for holden to deliver this awful monologue just really takes you out of it and the way the scene is staged especially because like you said yeah holden is driving her back home from new york to new jersey No, the other way from new jersey to new york yeah and it's pouring rain it's pouring rain. They just had this great like dinner date, essentially. Yeah. And he has just had enough of concealing his feelings for her. Yeah. So he pulls over on the side of the road. Pulls over and he comes out to her. Yeah. He pulls over at night in the rain and delivers this melodramatic monologue with these very weird undertones. In the, the in the midst of which he's like, it's, and I understand if you don't reciprocate, and I I totally get it. And like, Meanwhile, like every time it cuts over to Alyssa, this is probably Joey Lauren Adams's best scene because it's entirely reactionary, and you can just tell by the look on her face how uncomfortable she is and how claustrophobic this moment is. I, yeah, I can translate it to, oh God, oh God, no. Mm-hmm. I might need to flee this car. Which she does. She does. Uh, because he finishes up and he declares love. And she she shrieks like, what the fuck? And gets out. And not only because that's, you know, one, he's, he says he wants to torpedo his friendship with her to, uh, on the off chance that he could get a relationship out of it. Which is a fucked up thing to do. Yeah. Even on its face value, even if they were both hetero, if they, even if this was a possibility of romantic, to to dump a confession like that on somebody is just, I don't know how to say it, mean? Yeah. It's cruel. Inconsiderate. Inconsiderate at least to, to, to dump it on someone who you know at this, po- at this point, as far as you know, se- sexuality-wise, will not reciprocate at all ever. 
and put, still put that out there and still put that on this relationship, friendship, whatever, is bad enough. But, and I, I finally found a way to sum it up to you when we were talking about it earlier, was think about it from Alyssa's perspective where she's in a car with a guy, a guy she thought she trusted. He does this. What if he decides to get physical? What if he doesn't take no for an answer? Mm-hmm. For any woman who has been like, it's like I, I, I've heard stories and I understand. It's like, it's like there's women. There's a reason women don't go out walking alone at night. There's a reason you know women have to keep themselves armed with mace or something to protect themselves. And she is in a car trapped potentially, and he unloads this on her. I'd have run out of fucking car too. Yeah. And when she gets out of the car and walks away, Holden sighs and leans back and he says the line, was it something I said? And I don't know if that was Affleck or Smith, but one of them was patting themselves on the back for that one. I think it was Smith wanting to to, to have a, cause it was a heavy scene. So he wanted to cut the treacle, so to speak. Yeah, He wanted to toss out a little quip there. And it was the wrong thing to do. Um, so at the end of the film, during the ill-advised at best uh, three-way suggestion, admittedly, I like that scene at the end for the for like like I said before for the subversion of the idea that he's gathered them both mm-hmm. and he's pushing a chair over and he sits down and you think okay they're gonna talk it out it's gonna be a tough talk it's Kevin Smith they're gonna say a lot of uncomfortable truths and come to something and then he makes the dumbest fucking decision and the fact that Alyssa figures it out ahead of time yes <laughs> her reaction there is brilliant just sitting there going please don't please don't say she it she figures it out that he's going to suggest the worst possible thing <laughs> well during that scene holden outright tells banky that the reason that banky is so aggressively homophobic is because banky is gay and in love with him this bothered me and i can see where people get this idea from and i understand it that is not the impression that i got which makes holden's bold declaration and then his subsequent kissing of banky even more i got i'll just say it again problematic because especially given the establishment, the established relationships that Kevin Smith has already done between characters like this. Holden and Banky are essentially just Dante and Randall 3.0, with T.S. and Brody being Dante and Randall 2.0. They're vitriolic best buds. Well, I'd have to say it's me, I am people, because I think that was what he was doing. Right. But I think you're right, with his first two movies, he muddled that water because... You're right. You have Dante and Randall, and Randall is jealous, is mm-hmm. a, a jealous friend, and and wants, wants him for himself. And it's the same way I think uh, with uh, Brody and T.S. You're right, um, but I think it was intended to be a, a, a um, Banky severely repressing his sexuality, just based on just based on on how he does act. Because he f- he comes across as way less secure in himself than Randall does, mm-hmm. or like Brody does, like the 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 other the other Randalls. He really does. 
um, come across as that. But Holden, even if he, you know, even if I feel like he's correct in his assertion, but man, he was he went about handling that subject in the worst fucking way. Yeah, and in the smuggest way that if that affirms Holden's ego at the same time. Yeah. Uh, in the interest of following up a negative with a positive, I will say that Jason Lee is so much better in this film when he he's not shouting yeah. than he was in Mallrats. And specifically the scene uh, outside of the apartment that we've already talked about a little bit, the conversation that he has with Holden on their front steps, mm-hmm. that's a great performance from both Jason Lee and Ben Affleck. And he has a great character moment with Ben Affleck earlier in the movie before Hooper invites him out to the club uh, where they're working on their comic and Banky is inking and he just out of nowhere just goes, this is the best fucking streetlight you've ever drawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's just like a little, there's a little bit of, and, and Holden's like, yeah, it's the one over on it. And they just have a little, just a very, very quiet, like, Oh, you, 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 you see their relationship and how they feel about each other and as friends. Yeah. It's a nice establishing moment because we really don't get a lot of that between them because for most of the film, Banky is just an aggressive asshole. Yes. Uh, he uses a lot of homophobic slurs, which get attributed to him being a closeted homosexual. But he also tries to steamroll Holden and Alyssa's relationship. A hundred percent. And that has nothing to do with his sexuality. I, or even if he, or his unconfirmed crush on Holden it has everything to do with him being a jealous jealous friend mm-hmm. and wanting to get things back to normal yeah and I think it also has something to do with um, since this movie does have a lot to say and is so heavily focused on toxic masculinity mm-hmm. Banky's need to be right yeah because he outright tells Holden that when you find out about this girl's past it's going to eat you up inside and so Banky's first instinct is to go out and try to prove that because he's the one who tells Holden about the story about Alyssa's threesome. And it's Banky telling Holden this story that really starts unraveling their relationship. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh that is it is the linchpin. And that's after he does his four way intersection metaphor. Yeah. Which Jesus Christ. Um, but it, it was upsetting to me that yes their comic book collaboration falls apart yes they are no longer friends by the end but banky really suffers no repercussions whatsoever for being such a god-awful friend and in fact it's sort of in that climactic scene between the three of them the dissolution of their friendship is treated like Holden's fault when, I mean, no, he, it's again, it's like Randall trying to absolve himself in clerks. It's, you know, he played a part and he may not even think I, and see, that's what I think leads credence, lends credence to the idea that Banky is, was repressed. And, you know, Smith does confirm it in Jay and Silent Bob strike back. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I think that's what lends credence to the idea that he was repressed and he and he and he did want Holden as something more than a friend because arguably his punishment is that whole scene severing, you know, ending up severing their relationship is his punishment. Yeah. 
I mean, and 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 it is, and it is a severe punishment if that's true. But you're right. Essentially, I mean, even in that scene, he's still sniping with Alyssa. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I didn't. I. I started taking notes while watching this last night and coming up with discussion topics. And when it was over, I just sort of erased all of them mm-hmm. because I needed to start over and figure out how I needed to figure out a direction to take this episode and this discussion. in. Yeah. Um, that was that also needed to be inclusive and representative in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you have, any uh, any final thoughts about the film before we wrap up? Anything else you wanted to talk about? Oh, I mean, there's there's a lot I could say. I think I mean, well, I I I think I mean the unfortunately the linchpin of the movie, which is both good and bad, is that it puts it puts in full full front uh, fully in front that you know Holden is both naive about this about everything about this guy like he's he's being exposed to a, an alternative culture for the first time at least this one um and it and it showcases that you know i i think i told stan this when we were talking about it like he essentially he by the end of the first hour he won he got the thing he wanted so much and it still wasn't enough and it still bothered him that that he that like i mean hooper kind of subtly calls it out in the music store when he talks about, and I think he, I think he does, and I think he talks about this just to try and point out subtly to uh, Holden that he's that he's doing the same thing. He he points out that with some of the with some of his boyfriends, Hooper's played up the oh I've never done this before and oh because he plays to a fantasy that they're the they're the ones to get him for the first time, uh, and he and he kind of makes that I think he says that to make the point of like that's what you want and you have to let that go. It's just he had, and it's just like, and he can't. And even when in the scene, with one of the best scenes in the movie, uh, with the diner scene with Jay and Silent Bob, uh, when he's paying them for the likeness uh, rights, um, that whole scene is great. Because uh, to say to say nothing of the the message of it, but the interaction between Jay and Silent Bob when Silent Bob talks and and jay kind of uh kind of kind of makes fun of the trope of when he talks is this he's supposed he doesn't talk a lot so when he finally does it's supposed to be the most important fucking thing in the world and they make fun they they take a swipe at mall rats yes and there's a kevin smith uses that scene to be like yeah i know i know i i know what my problems are as a director and i'm trying you know i'm trying to showcase that i'm doing better um and by the end of that scene when bob tells a story and and then Holden takes that in and still misses the forest for the trees and misses the entire point. Like basically, Bob and that I I think that's why the subversion in the final scene happens because it's like Bob hands him the true answer on a silver fucking platter, mm-hmm. and Holden decides to ignore it. Yeah, and I I think I think that was supposed to be the point to basically the the person that most most guys like us are going to see and supposedly identify within the movie is like you have is like the, it's the trope of some anvils need dropping yeah it's like you're wrong <laughs> it should have been holden's watershed moment yeah and it still was but for the wrong reason yeah i, I think there was too much spent on him being wrong and not enough on you know 
giving him a chance to learn to learn a, properly on screen. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that intentionally or unintentionally viewing it 24 late, 24 years later, it has a lot to say about toxic masculinity and about white male fragility, mm-hmm. um, of which Holden McNeil is the poster child and is also like the final evolution of Dante and T.S. Like what started off as a character tick for Dante and became a plot point for T.S. eventually became the plot with Holden. And to an extent, that was also the case with Randall and Brody. And I feel like that's why this film ended up being like the last of this um, lovelorn, yeah, insecure guy phase mm-hmm. that Smith was going through. Because after this, the films get very, very different, you know. Dogma is such a fucking high concept film. Jay and Silent Bomb is a flat out stoner comedy. I don't even know what to call Clerks 2 besides just an absurd comedy. Uh, I think Clerks 2, and I'll talk about it more when we get to it, is uh, probably the full realization of what he was going for in the first three. Yeah. Yeah, basically. He finally takes all those concepts he worked on in those movies and actually employs them really well. Yeah. So that's really all I have to say about Chasing Amy. It was a frustrating rewatch. And while there are a lot of good elements to it, I think there are probably more problematic elements to it. Is it a film that I recommend? Yeah. To go in and see because just as much as mall rats and clerks this movie is so much a product of its time i can agree i um i can agree and i, and I would also say that um it is it is i went in with no expectations because i'd never seen it it was the one smith movie i was like kind of shied away from because it's like eh, not my not really my cup of tea but i will say it went well, at least the first hour went by pretty quick, pretty breezy, pretty fun. Um, it wasn't without its frustration. A lot of that is arguably frustration that's intentionally built into it. Um, I mean, as like I, I, I texted Dave when I was watching. I was like, when it hit the third act, I was like, why is Holden McNeil the dumbest motherfucker? Um, and that's intentional. You're mm-hmm. supposed to understand that. He wants to be her. Yeah, you know, they 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 call it out in the movie. He wants to be her savior, and she doesn't need saving. Mm-hmm. And it's like he gets so upset about her past that uh, her past experiences, when everything leading up to that, she's been nothing but devoted to him. Mm-hmm. He can't get over himself. Exactly. And to me, the most frustrating of all of his lines, and he's got. He says some very shitty things he to does. Alyssa throughout the movie. That parking lot scene is rough. It is so rough. It is. But to me, the most hurtful thing that he says to Alyssa is near the end 
of that scene at the where he suggests the threesome where he looks her in the eyes and he says you know i need this yeah giving no consideration to her feelings or, Banky. or banky's feelings yeah. the two closest people in his life to directly to her and in front of his best friend he says you know i need this yeah and that sums that sums up that he's still not there that he's no. still not there and uh, the 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 ga- the year gap between that and the epilogue is supposed to show that he finally is if not there at least on the way yeah um and and again ultimately i'll say it is a fun movie i say it if i think the most flat out entertaining pro- uh, problem free scene in the movie is the diner one yeah when they're discussing everything jay and silent bob uh, kill it <laughs> yeah and you know one thing we didn't discuss is just how immensely shitty Banky the character is. Like, yeah, he, he is. has so many problems, hang ups. Oh my God, so many hang ups yeah. and just not a great person. He's not. He's not. He, again, he is, like we discussed, he is the Smith loves giving the asshole friend mm-hmm. because he, he likes having the asshole friend who's abrasive and says the things people don't say. And then on top of that, it's like he's also the they're also the living embodiment of that Onion article. Um, heartbreaking news. The person th- this person you hate just said something really important or really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Says um, yeah, it says a good it raises a good point or something like that. It's a weird progression from hit from Smith's uh, vitriolic best friend characters to go from Randall who watches porn in public and mm-hmm. spits in a customer's face to Brody who stink palms people to Banky who shows pornography to a child in a public place and then openly ogles Catholic high schoolers. I will admit the look at the train scene with the kid is horrible, but the beginning of it is hilarious because for some reason, Banky has brought like 30 porn mags with him for this convention they're going to, if not more. And he's transferring them to his to his bag so he can get on the train. And as he's doing it, this kid just walks up to like three inches from his face and he just looks up and goes, hello. And then when Holden comes back, he's telling this kid a pornographic fairy tale using one of the mags. Specifically involving horses. It's oh, very it's upsetting. Awful. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's um, and I again. I think I think it's I think it feels to me like it leads. It's supposed to lend credence to the repressed part where he's giving that story about oh I I never got with any Catholic high schools and I think he's trying to say like when he was younger, so he doesn't have any stories about you know that kind of thing. But yeah, he is ogling them. I don't know if it's like. Genuine, or I think even in that moment of vulnerability, he's still trying to be like, I still have to be macho. Yeah, but in the context of the film and the way it's presented to us, Banky is sitting outside on the front stoop of his apartment, staring at the Catholic high schoolers across the street. This is after when he talks about, uh, before going to the club, he said he was just going to stay in and watch Degrassi Junior High. Mm-hmm. And and I reread the the quote. It was uh, Holden goes, "You have a weird thing about Canadian melodramas." And to which Banky replies, "I have a weird thing about girls who say a boot." Mm-hmm. 
And he's t- and he's talking about it in a manner like if he's genuinely straight, that's terrible because he's thinking about characters who are junior high girls. Yeah. I mean, that's that's awful. That's not cool in any respect. No. And it's just another weird aspect of an already weird character. Yeah. So I will say, um, if you do watch this movie for the first time, context is important here because like I said, this is so emblematic of the nineties and it is so much a product of its time that it's just important to be aware of when it was made and what the culture was at the time. It is. I will say credit to Holden's character when he talks to Alyssa, again, it is kind of a dumb conversation about the mechanics of lesbianism. Yeah. Um, but it is, he's not shying away or he's, he doesn't, he, he's, he feels comfortable asking questions. And I think that was an important thing that Smith put forward. That's an important, that it's, you should, you should want to understand. And he, and Holden doesn't, seem dejected about any of it he he actually is pretty accepting of the idea now that is following the scene where he realized that Alyssa is with a woman and so he's dejected because he 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 thought he was you know he had a chance so he was upset at the bar but after that when he decides to try friendship just you know try and stay friends he does I mean he never says says poorly of the fact that she's a lesbian he's just more upset that he couldn't get with her yeah and I think that's that's points in Kevin Smith's favor in terms of characterization. He the there's 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 Banky being a twat, but yeah. But Holden is is never against the idea of of like homosexuality in general. Yeah. Well, if you would like to actually read the article that I read aloud uh, earlier in the episode, I will include the link to that in the show notes. Um, moving forward, um, next month in April, we're going to have to start discussing two movies in order to get through the viewers universe. So in April, we're going to discuss dogma and Jay and silent Bob strike back in May. We're going to discuss clerks, the cartoon and clerks Two, And we're going to round it out in June by discussing Jay and silent Bob reboot. Then for the rest of the year, we are going to swing wildly in the opposite direction, talking about another auteur filmmaker, Christopher Nolan. Oh, are we going with Nolan? I didn't. I, I, yeah, I decided we, we would go with Nolan. Ah, crap. All right. Um, so in July, we're going to be discussing the film Memento. In August, we're going to discuss the Dark Knight trilogy. In September, we're going to discuss The Prestige. In October, Inception. In November, Interstellar. And December, we're going to discuss Tenet. Okay. Um, so Stan, if people, oh, right. He's not here. <laughs> uh, Chris, if people want to follow there's you online, there's no way you didn't notice the glaring silence. There's been so much of that. Um, uh, Chris, if people want to follow you online or reach out to you online, where can they do that at? Oh, uh, hold on. Sorry. My, nah, I was going to read off dogs as Twitter handle. It's Chris. The okay. Very nice. And if you want to follow me online, you can do that on Instagram at DB Hensley. To find out more about Long Walk Productions, you can visit our website, longwalk.us. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Long Walk Productions and Long Walk Walk Podcasts and giving us a like on Facebook. 
Um, if you want to see more of our original content or listen to our backlog of episodes, you can find the links to both of those YouTube channels in the show notes. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you are listening on. What's a Nubian?